This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Translated by Richard Crawley. Book 2, Chapter 7. Second Year of the War. The Plague of Athens. Position and Policy of Pericles. Fall of Potidaea. Such was the funeral that took place during this winter, with which the first year of the war came to an end. In the first days of summer, the Lacedaemonians and their allies, with two-thirds of their forces as before, invaded Attica, under the command of Archidamus, son of Zeusidamus, king of Lacedaemon, and sat down and laid waste to the country. Not many days after their arrival in Attica, the plague first began to show itself among the Athenians. It was said that it had broken out in many places previously in the neighborhood of Lemnos and elsewhere, but a pestilence of such extent and mortality was nowhere remembered. Neither were the physicians at first of any service, ignorant as they were of the proper way to treat it. But they died themselves the most thickly, as they visited the sick most often. Nor did any human art succeed any better. Supplications in the temples, divinations, and so forth were found equally futile, till the overwhelming nature of the disaster at last put a stop to them altogether. It first began, it is said, in the parts of Ethiopia above Egypt, and thence descended into Egypt and Libya, and into most of the king's country. Suddenly falling upon Athens, it first attacked the population in Piraeus, which was the occasion of their saying that the Peloponnesians had poisoned the reservoirs, there being as yet no walls there, and afterwards appeared in the upper city, when the deaths became much more frequent. All speculation as to its origin and its causes if causes can be found adequate to produce so great a disturbance, I leave to other writers, whether lay or professional. For myself, I shall simply set down its nature, and explain the symptoms by which perhaps it may be recognized by the student, if it should ever break out again. This I can the better do, as I had the disease myself, and watched its operation in the case of others. That year, then, is admitted to have been otherwise unprecedentedly free from sickness, and such few cases as occurred all determined in this. As a rule, however, there were no ostensible cause, but people in good health were all of a sudden attacked by violent heats in the head, and redness and inflammation in the eyes, the inward parts, such as the throat or tongue, becoming bloody and emitting an unnatural and fetid breath. These symptoms were followed by sneezing and hoarseness, after which the pain soon reached the chest, and produced a hard cough. When it fixed in the stomach, it upset it, and discharges of bile of every kind, named by physicians, ensued, accompanied by very great distress. In most cases also an ineffectual retching followed, producing violent spasms, which in some cases ceased soon after, in others much later. Externally the body was not very hot in the touch, nor pale in its appearance, but reddish, livid, and breaking out into small pustules and ulcers. But internally it burned so 
the patient could not bear to have on him clothing or linen even of the very lightest description, or indeed to be otherwise than stark naked. What they would have liked best would have been to throw themselves into cold water, as indeed was done by some of the neglected sick, who plunged into the rain tanks in the agonies of unquenchable thirst, though it made no difference whether they drank little or much. Besides this, the miserable feeling of not being able to rest or sleep never ceased to torment them. The body, meanwhile, did not waste away so long as the distemper was at its height, but held out to a marvel against its ravages, so that when they succumbed, as in most cases, on the seventh or eighth day to the internal inflammation, they had still some strength in them. But if they passed this stage, and the disease descended further into the bowels, inducing a violent ulceration there accompanied by severe diarrhea, this brought on a weakness which was generally fatal. For the disorder first settled in the head, ran its course from thence through the whole of the body, and, even where it did not prove mortal, it still left its mark on the extremities, for it settled in the privy parts, the fingers and the toes, and many escaped with the loss of these, some too with that of their eyes. Others again were seized with an entire loss of memory on their first recovery, and did not know either themselves or their friends. But while the nature of the distemper was such as to baffle all description, and its attacks almost too grievous for human nature to endure, it was still in the following circumstance that its difference from all ordinary disorders was most clearly shown. All the birds and beasts that prey upon human bodies either abstained from touching them, though there were many lying unburied, or died after tasting them. In proof of this, it was noticed that birds of this kind actually disappeared. They were not about the bodies, or indeed to be seen at all. But of course the effects which I have mentioned could best be studied in a domestic animal like the dog. Such then, if we pass over the varieties of particular cases, which were many and peculiar, were the general features of the distemper. Meanwhile, the town enjoyed an immunity from all the ordinary disorders, or if any case occurred, it ended in this. Some died in neglect, others in the midst of every attention. No remedy was found that could be used as a specific, for what did good in one case did harm in another. Strong and weak constitutions proved equally incapable of resistance all alike being swept away, although dieted with the utmost precaution. By far the most terrible feature in the malady was the dejection which ensued when any one felt himself sickening, for the despair into which they instantly fell took away their power of resistance, and left them a much easier prey to the disorder. Besides which, there was the awful spectacle of men dying like sheep, through having caught the infection in nursing each other. This caused the greatest mortality. On the one hand, if they were afraid to visit each other, they perished from neglect. Indeed, many houses were emptied of the inmates for want of a nurse. On the other, if they ventured to do so, death was the consequence. This was especially the case which such as made any pretensions to goodness. Honor made them unsparing of themselves and their attendants in their friends' houses where even the members of the family were at last worn out by the moans of the dying, and succumbed to the force of the disaster. Yet it was with those who had recovered from the disease, 
that the sick and the dying found their most compassion. These knew what it was from experience, and had now no fear for themselves, for the same man was never attacked twice, never at least fatally. And such persons not only received the congratulations of others, but themselves also, in the elation of the moment, half entertained the vain hope that they were for the future safe from any disease whatsoever. An aggravation of the existing calamity was the influx from the country into the city, and this was especially felt by the new arrivals. As there were no houses to receive them, they had to be lodged at the hot season of the year in stifling cabins, where the mortality raged without restraint. The bodies of dying men lay one upon another, and half-dead creatures reeled about the streets and gathered round all the fountains in their longing for water. The sacred places also in which they had quartered themselves were full of corpses of persons that had died there, just as they were, for as the disaster passed all bounds, men, not knowing what was to become of them, became utterly careless of everything, whether sacred or profane. All the burial rites before in use were entirely upset, and they buried the bodies as best they could. Many from want of the proper appliances, though, so many of their friends having died already, had recourse to the most shameless sepultures, Sometimes getting the start of those who had raised a pile, they threw their own dead body upon the stranger's pyre and ignited it. Sometimes they tossed the corpse which they were carrying on the top of another that was burning, and so went off. Nor was this the only form of lawless extravagance which owed its origin to the plague. Men now coolly ventured on what they formerly had done in a corner, and not just as they pleased, seeing the rapid transitions produced by persons in prosperity suddenly dying, and those who before had nothing succeeding to their property. So they resolved to spend quickly and enjoy themselves, regarding their lives and riches alike as things of a day. Perseverance in what men called honor was popular with none. It was so uncertain whether they would be spared to attain the object. But it was settled that present enjoyment and all that contributed to it was both honorable and useful. Fear of gods or law of man there was none to restrain them. As for the first, they judged it to be just the same whether they worshipped them or not, as they saw all alike perishing. And for the last, no one expected to live to be brought to trial for his offenses, but each felt that a far severer sentence had already been passed upon them all and hung over their heads. And before this fell, it was only reasonable to enjoy life a little. Such was the nature of the calamity, and heavily did it weigh on the Athenians, death raging within the city and devastation without. Among other things which they remembered in their distress was, very naturally, the following verse which the old men said had long ago been uttered. A Dorian war shall come, and with it death. So a dispute arose as to whether dearth and not death had not been the word in the verse. But at the present juncture it was, of course, decided in favor of the latter, for the people made their recollection fit in with their sufferings. I fancy, however, that if another Dorian war should ever afterwards come upon us, and a dearth should happen to accompany it, the verse will probably be read accordingly. The oracle 
also which had given to the Lacedaemonians was now remembered by those who knew of it. When the god was asked whether they should go to war, he answered that if they put their might into it, victory would be theirs, and that he would himself be with them. With this oracle, events were supposed to tally, for the plague broke out as soon as the Peloponnesians invaded Attica, and never entering Peloponnese, not at least to an extent worth noticing, committed its worst ravages at Athens, and next to Athens, at the most populous of the other towns. Such was the history of the plague. After ravaging the plain, the Peloponnesians advanced into the Perellian region as far as Lorium, where the Athenian silver mines are, and first laid waste the side looking towards Peloponnese, next that which faces Euboea and Andros. But Pericles, who was still a general, held the same opinion as in the former invasion, and would not let the Athenians march out against them. However, while they were still in the plain, and had not yet entered the Perellian land, he had prepared an armament of a hundred ships for Peloponnese, and when all was ready to put out to sea. On board the ships he took four thousand Athenian heavy infantry, and three hundred cavalry and horse transports, and then for the first time made out of old galleys, fifty Chian and Lesbian vessels also joining the expedition. When this Athenian armament put out to sea, they left the Peloponnesians in Attica, in the Perellian region. Arriving at Epidaurus in Peloponnese, they ravaged most of the territory, and even had hopes of taking the town by an assault. In this, however, they were not successful. Putting out from Epidaurus, they laid waste the territory of Trozen, Hylaeus, and Hermione, all towns on the coast of Peloponnese, and thence sailing to Persia, a maritime town in Laconia, ravaged part of its territory, and took and sacked the place itself, after which they returned home, but found the Peloponnesians gone, and no longer in Attica. During the whole time that the Peloponnesians were in Attica, and the Athenians on the expedition in their ships, men kept dying of the plague, both in the armament and in Athens. Indeed, it was actually asserted that the departure of the Peloponnesians was hastened by fear of the disorder, as they heard from deserters that it was in the city, and also could see the burials going on. Yet in this invasion they remained longer than in any other, and ravaged the whole country, for they were about forty days in Attica. The same summer Hagnon, son of Nicias, and Cleopompus, son of Clinius, the colleagues of Pericles, took the armament of which he had lately made use, and went off upon an expedition against the Chalcidians, in the direction of Thrace and Potidaea, which was still under siege. As soon as they arrived, they brought up their engines against Potidaea and tried every means of taking it, but did not succeed either in capturing the city or in doing anything else worthy of their preparations. For the plague attacked them here also, and committed such havoc as to cripple them completely, even the previously healthy soldiers of the former expedition catching the infection from Hegnon's troops. While Formio and the sixteen hundred men whom they commanded only escaped by being no longer in the neighborhood of the Chalcidians, the end of it was that Hyagnon returned with his ships to Athens, having lost one thousand and fifty out of four thousand heavy infantry in about four days. Though the soldiers stationed there before remained in the country and carried on the siege of Potidaea. 
After the second invasion of the Peloponnesians, a change came over the spirit of the Athenians. Their land had now been twice laid waste, and war and pestilence at once pressed heavy upon them. They began to find fault with Pericles, as the author of the war and the cause of all their misfortunes, and became eager to come to terms with Lacedaemon, and actually sent ambassadors thither, who did not, however, succeed in their mission. Their despair was now complete, and all vented itself upon Pericles. When he saw them exasperated at the present turn of affairs, and acting exactly as he had anticipated, he called an assembly, being, it must be remembered, still general, with the double object of restoring confidence and of leading them from these angry feelings to a calmer and more helpful state of mind. He accordingly came forward and spoke as follows. I was not unprepared for the indignation of which I have been the object, as I know its causes, and I have called an assembly for the purpose of reminding you upon certain points, and of protesting against your being unreasonably irritated with me, or cowed by your sufferings. I am of the opinion that national greatness is, is more for the advantage of private citizens than any individual well-being coupled with public humiliation. A man may be personally ever so well off, and yet if his country be ruined, he must be ruined with it, whereas a flourishing commonwealth always affords chances of salvation to unfortunate individuals. Since then, a state can support the misfortunes of private citizens, while they cannot support hers. It is surely the duty of every one to be forward in her defense, and not like you to be so confounded with your domestic afflictions, as to give up all thoughts of the common safety and to blame me for having counseled war, and yourselves for having voted it. And yet, if you are angry with me, it is with one who, as I believe, is second to no man either in knowledge of the proper policy, or in the ability to expound it, and who is moreover not only a patriot, but an honest one. A man possessing that knowledge, without that faculty of exposition, might as well have no idea at all on the matter. If he had both these gifts, but no love for his country, he would be but a cold advocate for her interests, while were his patriotism not proof against bribery, everything would go for a price. So that if you thought that I was even moderately distinguished for these qualities when you took my advice and went to war, there is certainly no reason now why I should be charged with having done wrong. For those, of course, who have a free choice in the matter, and whose fortunes are not at stake. War is the greatest of follies. But if the only choice was being submission with loss of independence, and danger with hope of preserving that independence, in such a case it is he who will not accept the risk that deserves blame, not he who will. I am the same man and do not alter. It is you who change, since in fact you took my advice while unhurt, and waited for misfortune to repent of it and the apparent error of my policy lies in the infirmity of your resolution, since the suffering that it entails is being felt by every one among you, while its advantage is still remote and obscure to all. And a great and sudden reverse having befallen you, your mind is too much depressed to persevere in your resolves. For before what is sudden, unexpected, and least within calculation, the spirit quails. And putting all else aside... The plague has certainly been an emergency of this kind. Born, however, as you are, citizens of a great state, and brought up, as you have been, 
with habits equal to your birth. You should be ready to face the greatest disasters, and still to keep unimpaired the luster of your name. For the judgment of mankind is as relentless to the weakness that falls short of a recognized renown, as it is jealous of the arrogance that aspires higher than its due. Cease then to grieve for your private afflictions, and address yourself instead to the safety of the commonwealth. If you shrink before the exertions which the war makes necessary, and fear that after all they may not have a happy result, you know the reasons by which I have often demonstrated to you the groundlessness of your apprehensions. If those are not enough, I will now reveal an advantage arising from the greatness of your dominion, which I think has never yet suggested itself to you, which I never mentioned in my previous speeches, and which has so bold a sound that I could scarcely adventure it now, were it not for the unnatural depression which I see around me. You perhaps think that your empire extends only over your allies. I will declare to you the truth. The visible field of action has two parts, land and sea. In the whole of one of these you are completely supreme, not merely as far as you use it at present, but also to what further extent you may think fit. In fine, your naval resources are such that your vessels may go where they please, without the king or any other nation on earth being able to stop them so that although you may think it a great privation to lose the use of your land and houses, still you must see that this power is something widely different, and instead of fretting on their account, you should really regard them in the light of the gardens and other accessories that embellish a great fortune, and as, in comparison, of little moment. You should know, too, that liberty preserved by your efforts will easily recover for us what we have lost, while the knee once bowed even what you have will pass from you, your fathers receiving those possessions not from others, but from themselves, did not let slip what their labor had acquired, but delivered them safely to you. And in this respect, at least, you must prove yourselves their equals, remembering that to lose what one has got is more disgraceful than to be balked in getting, and you must confront your enemies not merely with spirit, but with disdain. Confidence, indeed, a blissful ignorance can impart, a, even to a coward's breast. But disdain is the privilege of those who, like us, have been assured by reflection of their superiority to their adversary. And where the chances are the same, knowledge fortifies courage by the contempt which is its consequence, its trust being placed, not in hope, which is the prop of the desperate, but in a judgment grounded upon existing resources whose anticipations are more to be depended upon. Again, your country has a right to your services in sustaining the glories of her position. These are a common source of pride to you all, and you cannot decline the burdens of empire, and still expect to share its honors. You should remember also that what you are fighting against is not merely slavery as an exchange for independence but also loss of empire and danger from the animosities incurred in its exercise. Besides, to recede is no longer possible, if indeed any of you in the alarm of the moment has become enamored of the honesty of such an unambitious part. For what you hold is, to speak somewhat plainly, a tyranny. To take it perhaps was wrong, but to let it go is unsafe. And men of these retiring views, making converts of others, 
would quickly ruin a state. Indeed, the result would be the same if they could live independent by themselves. For the retiring and unambitious are never secure without vigorous protectors at their side. In fine, such qualities are useless to an imperial city, though they may help a dependency to an unmolested servitude. But you must not be seduced by citizens like these, or angry with me, who, if I voted for war, only did as you did yourselves, in spite of the enemy having invaded your country, and done what you could be certain that he would do, if you refused to comply with his demands. And although besides what we counted for, the plague has come upon us, the only point indeed in which our calculation has been at fault. It is this, I know, that has had a large share in making me more unpopular than I should otherwise have been, quite undeservedly, unless you are also prepared to give me the credit of any success with which chance may present you. Besides, the hand of heaven must be borne with resignation, that of the enemy with fortitude. This was the old way at Athens, and do not you prevent it being so still. Remember, too, that if your country has the greatest name in all the world, it is because she never bent before disaster, because she has expended more life and effort in war than any other city, and has won for herself a power greater than any hitherto known, the memory of which will descend to the latest posterity. Even if now, in obedience to the general law of decay, we should ever be forced to yield, still it will be remembered that we held rule over more Hellenes than any other Hellenic state, that we sustained the greatest wars against their united or separate powers, and inhabited a city unrivaled by any other in resources or magnitude. These glories may incur the censure of the slow and unambitious, but in the breast of energy they will awake emulation, and in those who must remain without them an envious regret. Hatred and unpopularity at the moment have fallen to the lot of all who have aspired to rule others. But where odium must be incurred, true wisdom incurs it for the highest objects. Hatred also is short-lived, but that which makes the splendor of the present and the glory of the future remains forever unforgotten. Make your decision, therefore, for glory then, and honor now, and attain both objects by instant and zealous effort. Do not send heralds to Lacedaemon, and do not betray any sign of being oppressed by your present sufferings, since they whose minds are least sensitive to calamity, and whose hands are most quick to meet it, are the greatest men and the greatest communities. Such were the arguments by which Pericles tried to cure the Athenians of their anger against him, and to divert their thoughts from their immediate afflictions. As a community he succeeded in convincing them. They not only gave up all idea of sending to Lacedaemon, but applied themselves with increased energy to the war. Still, as private individuals, they could not help smarting under their sufferings, the common people having been deprived of the little that they were possessed. While the higher orders had lost fine properties, with costly establishments and buildings in the country, and, worst of all, had war instead of peace. In fact, the public feeling against him did not subside until he had been fined. Not long afterwards, however, according to the way of the multitude, they again elected him general and committed all their affairs to his hands, having now become less sensitive to their private and domestic afflictions, and understanding that he was the best man of all for the public necessities. For as long as he was at the head of the state, during the peace, 
he pursued a moderate and conservative policy, and in his time its greatness was at its height. When the war broke out, here also he seems to have rightly gauged the power of his country. He outlived its commencement two years and six months, and the correctness of his provisions respecting it became better known by his death. He told them to wait quietly, to pay attention to their marine, to attempt no new conquests, and to expose the city to no hazards during the war, and doing this promised them a favorable result. What they did was the very contrary, allowing private ambitions and private interests, in matters apparently quite foreign to the war, to lead them into projects unjust both to themselves and to their allies, projects whose success would only conduce to the honor and advantage of private persons, and whose failure entailed certain disaster on the country in the war. The causes of this are not far to seek. Pericles, indeed, by his rank, ability, and known integrity, was enabled to exercise an independent control over the multitude. In short, to lead them instead of being led by them, for as he never sought power by improper means, he was never compelled to flatter them, but on the contrary, enjoyed so high an estimation that he could afford to anger them by contradiction. Whenever he saw them unseasonably and insolently elated, he would with a word reduce them to alarm. On the other hand, if they fell victims to a panic, he could at once restore them to confidence. In short, what was nominally a democracy became in his hands government by the first citizen. With his successors it was different. More on a level with one another, and each grasping at supremacy, they ended by committing even the conduct of state affairs to the whims of the multitude. This, as might have been expected in a great and sovereign state, produced a host of blunders, and amongst them the Sicilian expedition, though this failed not so much through a miscalculation of the power of those against whom it was sent, as through a fault in the senders in not taking the best measures afterwards to assist those who had gone out, but choosing rather to occupy themselves with private cabals for the leadership of the commons, by which they not only paralyzed operations in the field, but also first introduced civil discord at home. Yet, after losing most of their fleet besides other forces in Sicily, and with faction already dominant in the city, they could still for three years make head against their original adversaries, joined not only by the Sicilians, but also by their own allies, nearly all in revolt, and at last by the king's son Cyrus, who furnished the funds for the Peloponnesian navy. Nor did they finally succumb till they fell the victims of their own intestine disorders. So superfluously abundant were the resources from which the genius of Pericles foresaw an easy triumph in the war over the unaided forces of the Peloponnesians. During the same summer, the Lacedaemonians and their allies made an expedition with a hundred ships against Sassathus, an island lying off the coast of Elis, peopled by a colony of Achaeans from Peloponnese and in alliance with Athens. There were a thousand Lacedaemonian heavy infantry on board, and Snamus, a Spartan, as admiral. They made a descent from their ships, and ravaged most of the country, but as the inhabitants would not submit, they sailed back home. At the end of the same summer the Corinthian, Aristius, Anaristus, Nicholas, and Stratodemus, envoys from Lacedaemon, 
Timagoras, a Tegean, and a private individual named Paulus from Argos, on their way to Asia to persuade the king to supply funds and join in the war, came to Sesalces, son of Teres, in Thrace, with the idea of inducing him, if possible, to forsake the alliance of Athens and to march on Potidaea, then besieged by an Athenian force, and also of getting conveyed by his means to their destination across the Hellespont to Pharnabazus, who was to send them up the country to the king. But there chanced to be with Satalces some Athenian ambassadors, Lericus, son of Callimachus, and Aminides, son of Philemon, who persuaded Satalces' son, Sadocus, the new Athenian citizen, to put the men into their hands and thus prevent their crossing over to the king and doing their part to injure the country of his choice. He accordingly had them seized, as they were traveling through Thrace to the vessel in which they were to cross the Hellespont, by a party whom he had sent on with Laearchus and Aminides, and gave orders for their delivery to the Athenian ambassadors, by whom they were brought to Athens. On their arrival the Athenians, afraid that Aristius, who had been notably the prime mover in the previous affairs of Potidaea and their Thracian possessions, might live to do them still more mischief if he escaped, slew them all on the same day, without giving them a trial or hearing the defense which they wished to offer, and cast their bodies into a pit, thinking themselves justified in using in retaliation the same war mode of warfare which the Lacedaemonians had begun, when they slew and cast into pits all the Athenian and allied traders whom they caught on board the merchantmen round Peloponnese. Indeed, at the outset of the war, the Lacedaemonians butchered as enemies all whom they took on the sea, whether allies of Athens or neutrals. About the same time, towards the close of the summer, the Ambraciot forces, with a number of barbarians that they had raised, marched against the Amphilochian Argos and the rest of that country. The origin of their enmity towards the Argives was this. This Argos and the rest of Amphilochia were colonized by Amphilochus, son of Amphiaris. Dissatisfied with the state of affairs at home on his return thither after the Trojan War, he built the city in the Ambracian Gulf and named it Argos after his own country. This was the largest town in Amphilochia and its inhabitants the most powerful. Under the pressure of misfortune, Many generations afterwards, they called in the Ambrosiates, their neighbors, on the Amphilochian border, to join their colony, and it was by this union with the Ambrosiates that they learnt their present Hellenic speech, the rest of the Amphilochians being barbarians. After a time, the Ambrosiates expelled the Argives and held the city themselves. Upon this, the Amphilochians gave themselves over to the Acarnanians, and the two together called the Athenians who sent them Formio as general and thirty ships, upon whose arrival they took Argos by storm, and made slaves of the Ambrosiates, and the Amphilochians and Acarnanians inhabited the town in common. After this began the alliance between the Athenians and the Acarnanians. The enmity of the Ambrosiates against the Argives thus commenced with the enslavement of their citizens, and afterwards, during the war, they collected this armament among themselves and the Achaeonians, and other of the neighboring barbarians. Arrived before Argos, they became masters of the country, but not being successful in their attacks upon the town, returned home and dispersed among their different peoples. 
Such were the events of the summer. The ensuing winter, the Athenians sent twenty ships round Peloponnese, under the command of Formio, who stationed himself at Napacitus and kept watch against any one sailing in or out of Corinth and the Crissian Gulf. Six others went to Caria and Lycia under Melisander to collect tribute in those parts, and also to prevent the Peloponnesian privateers from taking up their station in those waters and molesting the passage of the merchantmen from Phasilus and Phoenicia and the adjoining continent. However, Messalander, going up the country into Lycia with a force of Athenians from the ships and the allies, was defeated and killed in battle, with the loss of a number of his troops. The same winter the Potidians at length found themselves no longer able to hold out against their besiegers. The inroads of the Peloponnesians into Attica had not had the desired effect of making the Athenians rise the siege. Provisions there were none left, and so far had distress for food gone in Potidia that, besides a number of other horrors, instances had even occurred of the people having eaten one another. In this extremity, they at last made proposals for capitulating to the Athenian generals in command against them. Xenophon, son of Euripides, Hestiodorus, son of Aristocleides, and Phenomachus, son of Callimachus. The generals accepted their proposals, seeing the sufferings of the army in so exposed a position, besides which the state had already spent two thousand talents upon the siege. The terms of the capitulation were as follows. A free passage out for themselves, their children, wives, and auxiliaries, with one garment apiece, the women with two, and a fixed sum of money for their journey. Under this treaty they went out to Chalcides and other places, according as was their power. The Athenians, however, blamed the generals for granting terms without instructions from home, being of opinion that the place would have had to surrender at discretion. They afterwards sent settlers of their own to Potidia and colonized it. Such were the events of the winter, and so ended the second year of this war, which Thucydides was the historian. This is the end of chapter 7.